This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. If we haven't had a chance to meet yet, my name is Kevin, and I'm going to guide us through the next part of our morning together. And if you're a guest with us today, I want to welcome you. What a gift it is for you to choose to be here with us today. I know that you could be doing other things. I know that you could be watching basketball, sleeping in, enjoying the nice day, and, and yet something in you drew you to be here, and we think that's an incredible gift. And so what we want to do on our end is we just want to take down any barrier that you might have that would keep you from encountering God, because our hope as a community of faith is that we would open the door wide for you to encounter God and not feel like there are in-groups and out-groups when you show up, but really that we're all in this together. And one of the ways that we do that is every week when you come in, you get a program, and inside that program, there are some tools to help you connect with God, connect with our community. So I want everybody to go ahead and grab one of these. Since we're all on the same page, we're all doing this together. The first is this card that says, Start Here. If you're a guest with us, here's what you need to know about this card. It's a connection card. It helps us connect with you. It helps you connect with uh, other people in the church, with the things we're doing in our city and around the world. And ultimately, when the time comes that you want to connect with God— This is one way that we can help you connect with God, and that's why we're here. We want to help you connect with God. So we ask everybody just to fill this out with your name and your email address, and then as we go on today, I'll have certain things we'll do with that later on. The other thing you're going to want are these notes. There are some teaching notes. They have the Bible verses that we'll be going through today. They have some some thought-provoking questions and fill-in-the-blank spots for you so you can take the things home and hopefully not just forget about what we learned, but actually incorporate that into our lives. Because our goal is that church wouldn't just be something we do for like an hour and five minutes on Sunday, but that this would become part of our lives, this journey towards seeking after God. So go ahead and grab that, and that will help you on the journey as well. Well, I was doing some reading recently, and I came across some interesting research. The research showed that the average child asks somewhere around 125 questions every day. If you're a parent, you, you give me an amen right now. This is where you'll say, that's, yes, absolutely. 125 questions. And I, I began to think, why, why do kids ask so many questions? And as I thought about that, a couple of realizations came up. One is that kids ask a lot of questions because to them, everything is new. They are experiencing life, experiencing the world for the, for the very first time. And they they have all these questions because there's this newness, this excitement, this adventure to life when you're a child. And they ask questions because they assume that someone out there has some answers. And usually it's mom and dad. They assume mom and dad know everything. My five-year-old said to me yesterday, Daddy, I wish it would snow here in Petaluma. Why doesn't it snow in Petaluma? I said, well, it, it did snow once a number of years ago. And she said, wow, I would really like to go to the snow. Daddy, can we go to the snow? I said, we can, we can go to the snow. She said, when? I said, well, how about next year? We'll go to the snow. She said, next year it's going to snow in Petaluma? I said, well, no, honey. Uh, next year we'll go to the mountains and there will be snow there. And this continued for about 10 minutes, trying to figure out where the snow is and how do we get to the snow and, and when can we play in the snow? And wow, could we go to the snow right now? See, they assume, my daughter assumed that I have some answers to her questions. And she's discovering how the world works, how, how human interaction works and cause and effect. And so she asks all these questions. But here's the part that I found really interesting. The average adult, let's let me have you think about this for a second. How many questions do you think the average adult asks? You think, how many of you think it's more than 20 questions a day? More than 20? Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to call on you. Okay, okay. all right, all right. Uh, how about... Um, more than 10 questions a day. How many of you, 
Okay, the 20 should still be up. Yeah, this is good. This is math. Um, less than 10? Yeah, you're getting warmer. You're getting warmer. The average adult asks six, six questions a day. Now, just think about that for a second. Somewhere between here as a child and there as an adult, we lose 119 questions a day, a day. That's, that's 833 questions a week. That's 43,435 questions a year. Because isn't it true that as we grow up, we switch from asking questions to making assumptions, The world isn't as new anymore, and we assume we know how the world works. We assume that we've discovered everything there is to discover. We assume that we actually have most of the answers to most of the questions out there. So we move from asking questions to making assumptions. And I think that's why Jesus in the Bible talks a lot about children. And he says, when you come to faith in me, when you, when you transfer your trust from your own life and your own way of doing things and your old worldview and, and, and your own kind of sense of right and wrong, when you transfer your trust from you over to me, he says, I want you to do it like a child. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 18. He says, truly I tell you, and he's talking to us now, unless you change and become like a little child, you'll never enter the kingdom of, of heaven. See, when we when we transfer our trust from ourselves over to Jesus, we begin this lifelong process of unlearning and learning. We begin to unlearn some of the things that we thought were true about the world and about relationships. We unlearn some of the things we thought about, about love and about work and about ethic, and, and we learn new things. We learn what it means to be part of God's family. The Bible talks about God a lot as a heavenly father. We learn what it means to be sons and daughters of a God who loves us like a, like a father who's perfect. And and we learn about, we learn about how, to, how to walk with God, how to walk with God every day from the day we make this decision to put our trust in Him on. We learn how to find freedom in our lives from past hurts and pains and addictions and struggles, and, and it's an incredible thing. But that takes a lot of question asking. See, we have to ask, well, what, this is what I used to know, God, and, but I, I don't think that's actually the way to go anymore, so would you show me what it looks like to be new and we're in this series that we're calling Uncaged. And Uncaged is really um, about knowing God, about trusting that God at his core is a creative, big, beautiful, loving God who wants to walk with us in this life, to know us uniquely. And it's, it's about trusting that God is more loving than we could ever imagine and that he is wiser than we could ever imagine. And when we understand that, what it does is it gives us the freedom to follow God wherever he leads us, even if, and this is, this is key, even if where he wants to take us or what he wants to say to us doesn't, doesn't always make sense. Even if we don't fully agree with some of the specifics, we can still trust God and follow him because God is incredibly loving and God is incredibly wise. And so the series is really all about expecting God to show up as we open ourselves up to him. It's about following him on a journey towards freedom, towards having a purpose in life, towards knowing what it looks like to not, not believe that God is this distant figure, but some, someone who is actually close to us. One of the keys to following God like that is to break out of our assumptions. So each week we're talking about a cage that traps us from really following God, that holds us in. And this week I want to talk about the cage of assumptions. I think in order to really follow God, we've got to break out of some of those, those assumptions about who God is, about how the world works, assumptions about what God can do and what God can't do. 
In the very beginning of the Bible, we find out that God created us in His image. It says that God created us male and female in the image of God. He created us. But here's the interesting thing about human beings is throughout the rest of human history, we have been returning the favor. God made us in His image, and then for the rest of our lives, we kind of tend to make God back in our image, which means that, that our God kind of starts to look a lot like us. He's about our size. Uh, he's about as powerful as we are, maybe a little stronger, you know? Maybe he's like Arnold Schwarzenegger and you're like Pee Wee Herman, but we're in the same general kind of sphere. Uh, we believe that God can do about what we can do. Again, maybe a little more, you know, maybe, maybe a little more, but, but not a, a whole lot more. But friends, I want to tell you something. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a big, vast, strong powerful, miracle-working, sin-forgiving, Holy Spirit-giving, invite us into His presence, life-transforming, marriage-saving, purpose-giving God. He is a God who is bigger and more vast than anything we could ever imagine. And I'm just going to keep on going. Can I get a little excitement in the house today? <laughs> yes! He is a—wow, okay, look, we're getting a, get our clap on. God is— big. And here's the incredible paradox. God is big, and yet in, in Jesus Christ, God became a human. He, he poured himself into the flesh, and he lived with us, and he showed us that God is both big and vast and yet incredibly near. And the God of the Bible is, is in the business of taking ordinary people breaking us out of our cage of assumptions so that we can fully follow after him in the life we were created to live. And it's fun. This is what he does over and over again in the Bible. One of the things I love about the Bible is, is the Bible talks about ordinary real people. The Bible's not a comic book about superheroes who get bit by spiders and then have this incredible life. The Bible is a story of ordinary people with ordinary fears and ordinary lives who assume certain things about God. And then over and over again in the Bible, God just busts through that cage of assumption and he opens people's eyes to how big and how vast he is. And when God does that, he changes lives, he changes stories, he changes futures, he changes eternity. And I want to talk about one guy today who had that kind of story. His name is, is Abram. And if you know your Bible later on, he, he gets to be called Abraham. And the big thing about Abraham, just to kind of give us some big picture of the Bible, Abraham is the guy that God used he and his wife to start a family. Their family grew, 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 became bigger, became a nation. They uh, became the nation of Israel, the modern-day Jewish people. So Abraham was one guy, but through him, God started this whole family of faith. And then uh, Jesus came from Abraham's family line. He's a descendant of him. And so that's just kind of the big-picture story. But I want to talk about Abraham before he was a nation, before he had kids, when he was still wrestling with what God can and what God can't do. So Abraham's married to a gal named Sarah, and God's done some incredible stuff in their life. But God made one promise to Abraham that, that Abraham believed would change his life. God said, I'm going to give you and your wife a son. And your son's going to become a, a family, and that family's going to become a nation. But here's the sticking point. Up until this point, and Abraham is getting into his 90s now. Up until this point, God has not come through on his promise. So Abraham starts to assume certain things about God, and that's where we're going to pick up the story in Genesis chapter 15. It says, After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham or came to Abram in a vision. He said, Don't be afraid, Abram. I, and this is God talking, I am your shield and your very great reward. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, 
what can you give me since I remain childless? I have this promise from you that you have not done. I remain childless. And the one who will inherit my estate is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, you've given me no children, God. So this servant who lives in my household, he's going to be my heir. And the word of the Lord came to him and said, this man will not be your heir, but a son who is of your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And then I want you to underline this if you have your notes with you, you have a pencil. It says, then God took him outside. Just underline that because that's going to become important later. God took him outside. And here's one of the things I love about God. I think God has a sense of humor. If I ever offend you because I joke, I would just say, hey, look at God. He has a pretty good sense of humor too. Look at what God says to Abram. Takes him outside and he says, hey, Abe. He says, look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. It's like, see, see if you can do that. Let's have a little... little Lesson here. Let's have a little experiment. Look outside, count the stars, and if you can see if you can count them. And I think just about the time that Abram lost count, maybe at 100 or 150 or 200, God said to him, So shall be your offspring. Verse 6 says, And Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now, here's the backstory on Abram. God had already done some pretty incredible stuff in his life. He had given him property. He'd given him livestock. He'd given him servants. He made him incredibly wealthy. But there was this one promise that God had not fulfilled yet. And we're talking years from the time that this promise was made until the time where we find Genesis 15. God had not given him a son. And so Abram assumes, you know what? I've gotten old. Maybe, maybe I didn't hear right from God. Maybe I'm mistaken. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take my head servant, this guy Eleazar, and I'm going to when I die, I'm going to make him my heir. So he's going to get the estate. Maybe God will use him to make a great nation. And that's what happens oftentimes when we assume things about God. God tells us something. God guides us some way. God gives us a plan. He says, listen, uh, you're single. Walk with me in your singleness. Live in purity. Trust that I will give you the desires of your heart. Trust that I, I will find a spouse for you, that I, I will do the things that you want. And we, we get into our early 20s and our mid-20s and our late 20s, and we start to say, oh, maybe I misunderstood what God was really saying. I'm going to try to do it on my own you know, maybe I'll just go out and I'll try to find somebody and make it happen on my, on my own. And that's kind of what Abe's doing here. He says, you know what? I know God promised me a son, but it's not coming. And so he assumes, I'm in my 90s now. If God hasn't done it yet, God will never do it. But here's the truth. God wants to shatter assumptions about what God can do and what God can't do. And Abram's inside his tent when when he starts praying and God starts talking to him. And so God says to him, come outside of your tent because right now you're sitting in this tent and all you can see are the walls around you. All you can see is the ceiling above you. And, and I think that God thought, you know what, Abraham, your vision of me is only as big as this room. So come outside for a second and count the stars. Look how big I am. Look how vast I am. Look how many stars there are. Have you, ha, just on a side note, have you ever stopped and looked out at the night? We live in Petaluma. What an incredible place to live. Close to the mountains. We're close to the ocean. We, we have clear nights. Have you ever looked out and just saw how vast creation is and thought, wow, God, God, you're big. You're really big. I think that's what God was trying to do with Abram. He was trying to say, you know what, Abram? You, you're limiting me. I'm the God who created all of this. And if I created all of this, then I can come through for you. If I can, if I can make these stars, then I can make a sun. If I can do what, 
what you could never do by creating this beautiful landscape, then I can do in you what I promised to do in you. So he says, stop assuming that I'm as small as you are. I am God. I'm God. See, we serve a big God who works miraculously on behalf of his people. We serve a big, big God. Thomas Jefferson who wrote the Declaration of Independence, he, uh, he really appreciated Jesus. He liked the teachings of Jesus. In fact, he said this about Jesus. Uh, he said that Jesus is the most sublime and benevolent, or gave us the most sublime and benevolent code of morals which has ever been offered to man. He thought Jesus was the wisest teacher who had ever been. He thought Jesus was an incredibly moral leader. But here's the problem with Jefferson. Jefferson was a product of the Enlightenment. And as a product of the Enlightenment, he assumed certain things about God. One of the things that Thomas Jefferson assumed about God is that the God of the Bible does not do miracles, that miracles were added into the Bible, that they actually don't happen, that they aren't there. So one night, and this is a true story, one night Thomas Jefferson took a pair of scissors, and for the next three nights he took his New Testament of his Bible, and he cut out every single miracle in the New Testament of the Bible. Every healing, every um, casting out of a demon, every feeding of 5,000. He, he took out the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. He took out every miracle in the New Testament of the Bible. And what became uh, known as the Jefferson Bible was what he came out with at the end of these three days. But here's the problem with the Jefferson Bible. It was the New Testament, and, and it was really, really small. Because if you take the miracles out of the New Testament of the Bible, you don't have a whole lot of Bible left. If you're new to Christianity, here's the story of the New Testament of the Bible, that, that you and I were separated from God by sin. And if you don't know what sin is, just think about um, the things that you, you do or say or think that are hurting you right now and that are hurting the people that you love, those closest to you. And, and the Bible says that those things actually separate us from God who created us. It, it's those things, I don't even have to tell you what it is. It's those things where you lay in bed at night and you say, I'm never going to do that again. And then you wake up the next day and you do it again. That's sin that we have been separated from God by sin, that sin is controlling us, and that God stepped into the pages of human history in Jesus Christ. God became flesh. He became a man, and he lived a perfect, sinless life to show us what it meant to walk with God. And then God went a step further. Jesus Christ gave his life on a cross. And when he gave his life on a cross, he paid the penalty for the sin that we deserve so that we could be found innocent before God and blameless before God. And here's where it gets really exciting. But God didn't stay dead. Three days later, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Rose from the dead. And when he did that, he broke the power of sin and death and destruction in our lives so that we can be, we can be sons and daughters of God. And that is the, that's the main thrust of the New Testament. That is the story that the New Testament speaks of regularly. That's the story that the Old Testament is pointing to. That's the story that the New Testament is speaking of over and over again. And if we take the miracles out of the Bible, there is no Bible because God is a big God, and he's a God that works miracles. And I think part of breaking out of our, our cage of assumption is understanding that God is an incredibly big God who does incredible miracles in our lives. And I want to say this about, about our assumptions. Breaking out of this cage, the things that we assume about God, it's not always going to be logical. What I mean by that is God's going to say certain things to us that just aren't going to make sense sometimes. It's not always logical, but I will say this. It's not always illogical either. So it's not like God says all sorts of crazy things. In fact, God is very practical. God gives us ways to live that are incredibly practical. It's not always logical. It's not always illogical, but it's always theological. 
And theology is basically just a big word that means the study of God. Breaking out of assumptions and following after God means that we, we begin to study God, to know who God is, what He has done, is doing, and will do, so that we can follow after Him. I think that's why Abe walks out of his tent, because God says, you know what, I know what I'm telling you is not logical. I know that 90-year-olds don't have kids on a regular basis. But I'm the God who made the stars in the sky. And if I can do that, I can do this. So I want to ask you, what assumptions are you keeping about God? What assumptions are keeping you caged in life right now? They could be subconscious assumptions. They could be right on the forefront. What, what assumptions are keeping you caged from really following after God? I want to talk about some false assumptions that are pretty common for us. One of them is, I'm too old for God to use me too old for God to use me. That's a pretty common assumption. I've had the privilege of walking with an incredible leader, our pastor Ron, for the last number of years. And as we walk through this transition point, that's one of the questions that he really had to wrestle with with God was, is, is the best of my life and ministry behind me? Or does God actually have something for me moving forward? And he wrestled that to the ground and God reminded him, the best of your life is actually ahead of you. Because God's in the process of using people all the way through their lives. If you're still breathing, God's still working. If you're still breathing, God's still working. He, he likes using people in the twilight of their lives to do incredible things. Abraham, Abraham was 95 years old, and his assumption was 95-year-olds don't have babies. And Sarah's assumption was 95-year-old women do not nurse on a regular basis. And Abraham was thinking, 95-year-old dads do not change diapers. We have passed that stage. But God's full of late bloomers. Moses, who we talked about a couple weeks ago, Moses was in his 80s when he led a nation of people out of slavery under Egypt. In his 80s. Noah, who built the ark, and there's this cool movie coming out. I don't know if you've seen this cool, like, Noah movie. Noah was in his 500s when he built a boat. 500s. I'm 33 and my back already hurts thinking about that. <laughs> Do you think you've missed your window? to be used by God. Can I tell you, you haven't. You haven't. Don't assume that. God can use you now and do incredible things. Another assumption on the other end of that pendulum is that I'm too young. I'm too young for God to use me. And I can tell you this is the one that, that I have to wrestle to the ground on a regular basis. Because I look around me and I see Pastor Ron and I see other pastors in the city who are incredibly gifted and talented and have experience. And I think, I'm too young for God to use me. But then I remember that God used a, a teenage girl named Mary to give birth to Jesus Christ and to raise him as a teenager. And then I remember that David, who was the most famous king in the Old Testament of the Bible, David was just a boy when he fought a giant named Goliath, and God used him to do something incredible. I remember that most of the, the disciples, most of Jesus' 12 closest followers, were 20-somethings. Which, by the way, doesn't that explain why they say some of the things they do? You know, like, have you ever thought, like, you read the Bible and you think, who would say that to Jesus? Then you're like, oh, he's a 20-something. Okay. That makes sense. I get it. If you're still breathing, God's still working. And no matter how young you are, God can use you. How about this one? I don't know enough. I don't know enough for God to use me. Friends, many of you came to this church and encountered God for the first time, and you feel like you're brand new in your faith. 
And, and I get it because you, you go and you pick up your kids from the construction zone and they're telling you Bible stories that you're like, that's in there? I didn't know that. I, and I, I love that about our church. We are reaching people who are far from God and helping them encounter God in a very real way. But that means that many of us are going to be new in our faith and we're going to feel like we just don't know enough for God to use us. And I want to tell you, God can use you right where you are and teach you everything you need to know so that you can follow him in the life you were created for. There is no, I don't know enough. God used God used carpenters and he used fishermen and he used peasants to start his church and to lead his church. You do know enough because here's what you know. You know the living God. And our, our wisdom is not by the things that we've learned and it's not from all the Bible study we do. That will grow and that will help us become the people God created us to be. But when we know God and he's living in us, that is enough for us to be the men and women that God created us to be. Is your assumption that you just don't know enough for God to use you? It's wrong and it's a lie. Or how about this one? My past disqualifies me from being used by God. My past disqualifies me. That's a huge assumption that so many of us have. And actually, it's such a big assumption that Pastor Ron is going to speak on that next week. We're going to spend a whole Sunday talking about the reality that our past does not disqualify us from the future. That God can actually take whatever we've done in the past and use it. And it's going to be an incredible sermon. You do not want to miss it. Plus, Ron's been off for like six weeks of preaching. So he's just got like a month and a half of wisdom just stored up in there. So, so bring your water bottles, okay? Because it could, could be a while. It could be a while. Here's what I was thinking about as I've been, I've been praying for us today. And I put it in here as your note. The people who God uses the most are the ones that assume the least about what God can and can't do through them. The people that God uses the most are the ones who assume the least about what God can and cannot do. Without God, the best we can do is the best we can do. And that's different for different ones of us, based on our family background, based on the way we were raised, based on our giftings and abilities. Some of us can go further than others. Without God, the best we can do is the best we can do. But I can tell you this, regardless of where you start, the highest you can get without God is, is just about here. It's just about here. Some of us are lower, some of us are a little higher. But without God, the best we can do is the best we can do. But with God, the best we can do is the best he can do. And he can do incredibly more with our lives than we could ever do on our own. My wife, uh, her grandparents are still living. They're 92 and 93 years old, and they are some of the most incredible people. I think they just celebrated their, was their 70th wedding anniversary or their 71st wedding anniversary. I love my grandparents-in-law. They're, they're, they're beautiful. Their story is incredible. But here's one thing I know about them, as much as I love them, and I mean don't, no disrespect, there's not a doctor in the world who would tell them, you know what, I think I can get you guys pregnant. Come on in. Let's try this out. Not a doctor in the world. Because without God, the best we can do is the best we can do. But Abraham and Sarah were 100 years old when they had a baby. 100 years old. With God, the best we can do is the best that he can do. Imagine, imagine what your life would look like if you began to believe that with God, the best I can do is the best that he can do. And he can do more than anything I could ever imagine. Imagine what would happen. Let's just talk about it. What would happen? Think about your dreams. Think about the dreams that you've given up on. You thought, you know what? I thought God told me to do this. I had this dream, but, but life got busy. I had a marriage and a divorce. I'm just trying to raise the kids. And, 
I got to pay the bills, and that dream is, has died. What if you believed that when God gave you a dream, he's going to fulfill the dream because the best we can do with God is the best that he can do? What if you believe that? Can I tell you something for those of you who think that that's not true? From the time that God promised Abraham a son to the time that his son Isaac was born, it was 25 years. 25 years of praying and asking God to do what God said he would do. That's 300 months. That's 1,300 weeks. That's 9,125 days of Abraham believing God's promise. Now, I I wonder, at what day would we stop? Day 1,000? Day 2,000? What if Abraham stopped on day 1,924? He would have been one day shy of experiencing the promise that God had given to him. Is there a dream that you've let die that God wants to resurrect? Or what would this do to your finances? Imagine if, imagine if we believed that, that God can do more with 90% than we can do with 100. See, the Bible talks about tithing, about being generous and giving the first 10% back to him, and God promises, I'll do more with the 90 than you could do with 100. He says, because I'm big, and that's the way I work. And it's not always logical. It is theological. It is the study of God, what he has done, is doing, and will do. What if we said, you know what, God? I trust you that you can do more with 90 than I could do with 100. What would God do in your finances? Think about the the way he could bring freedom and break us out of debt if, if God was involved in our money as we followed him and were generous. Did you know that Abraham was the first person to ever tithe? First person to ever give 10% back to God? Because Abraham dealt with his money the way he dealt with his life. He dealt with it by faith, trusting that God could do more through him if he followed after God. Or how about this? For some of us, maybe it's just this pattern of sin. We've got this sin thing in our life, and, and, and right now the best we think we can do is just kind of manage it, make sure that our, our sin isn't hurting those closest to us and that it's not hurting us too bad. But what if we believe that God could actually eradicate that sin from our lives? What would, we, what, would, what would it be like if we said, you know what, God, I believe that what you say is true is true. Even if I don't understand it, even if I don't agree with it, I believe it's true because you're more loving than me, you're wiser than me, so I'm going to do what you say to do. What would that look like in our lives? What kind of sin could God break us free from? What kind of freedom could we experience? I, wanna, I want you to ask yourself, what would that change in your life? What would your life look like? And if you're here today, and you're new to this whole Christianity thing, I want to ask you, what would it look like if you believed that story that I told you about God becoming a man so that he could save you? What would that look like? What if you believed that God actually did take the penalty for your sin? What would it look like for you today to believe that God actually does forgive you, that he knows everything you've ever done, everything you are doing right now and everything you will do and God still chooses to love you and forgive you, what would it look like to believe that was true? What would it look like to believe that God invites you into his family? He says, now you're my daughter and I love you and I'm going to treat you like, like a daughter should be treated. Or you're my son and I'm going to love you and train you and teach you like a son should be treated. What would that look like for you? What would it look like if you believe that God really did fill you with his Holy Spirit, that the Spirit of God, when we come to faith, actually lives inside of us and changes us from the inside out? What would that look like today for you? I want to invite you, if you're here and you've never said yes to Jesus, that all of those things are true. 
They seem too good to be true, but they're not. God loves you with an incredible love, and he's inviting you into a relationship with him where he can lead you and guide you and take you in the life that you were created to live. See, placing our trust in God means taking a step when we sense God leading. That's what Abraham did. He sensed God leading him, and he took a step. The New Testament actually says this about Abraham. It says, by faith, this guy Abram, who we've been talking about all day, by faith in Hebrews chapter 11, it says, when God called him to a place that he would later receive as an, an inheritance, Abraham obeyed and he went, even though he did not know where he was going. He took a next step. He sensed God calling him and he trusted God and took a step. And when Jesus gave his life for you on the cross, he invited you to take a step. Not fully even knowing where you're going. Not knowing what that's going to change or what that's going to do, but simply knowing that God is so big and vast and loving that he is doing something in your life and that you can trust him with your life. I want to close with this. The only safe assumption about God is that whatever God's inviting us to do, it's the best thing to do. That's the only safe assumption we can have about God. Everything else is off the table. And I know that because Jesus gave his life for us. He said, your sin had separated you from me, and I'm giving myself for you. So what we're going to do as a way of remembering that whatever God says to do is the best thing to do is we're going to take communion in just a second. So there are tables around the room, and on them there are a piece of bread and a cup of juice. The bread represents Jesus' body, which was given for us. The juice represents Jesus' blood, which was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins so that we could have life with God, so we could be transformed by God, so we could live in eternity with God one day. And we're going to celebrate communion. We're going to sing a song, and then we're going to celebrate, and we're going to say, if God can do that, then God can do anything. So I want to pray for us, and I want to pray two things. I want to pray for us as we, as we take this journey with God, break out of assumptions. And I also want to pray for you, if you're here and you've never said yes to Jesus, you've never given your life to him, that you would do that today. And as I pray that, I'll, I'll let you know when it is, and I'm going to invite you just to whisper a prayer where you're sitting, a prayer of commitment to God, if you're ready to say yes to him. It's no magic spell. It's no incantation. It's simply a prayer of commitment where we would say, yes, God, I'm transferring my trust from myself to you from this day forward through the rest of my life. So would you join me? Let's pray together. Jesus, I, I ask that as we come together, as we stand in just a minute to worship you, and then after worship as we, as we move towards communion, that you would remind us that you are a big God, that you are the God who does miracles, that the main miracle you did was that you, you took our sin upon yourself when you died on the cross and that you rose again from the dead so that we could be forgiven and restored back to our creator God, that we could walk with you on this journey of life. And as we, we celebrate with the piece of bread and the cup of juice, would you help us to remember, God, that if you can do that, you can do anything. And if you're here today and you've never said yes to Jesus, as we continue to pray, I want to invite you to commit your life to him. He loves you and he's calling you to himself. Don't let this moment pass you by. You can pray this simple prayer. Just repeat these words after me right where you're sitting and say, Lord Jesus, I believe that you love me. I believe that you love me enough that you left heaven and came to earth and that you gave your life on a cross to pay the penalty for my sin. Today, God, I say yes. Yes, I want this life that you're offering. Yes, I want you. So would you come, Lord? 
Would you forgive me of my sin? Would you fill me with your Holy Spirit? And would you show me what it looks like to walk every day from this day forward into eternity? I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information, at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.